Big Sight, <laughs> New Hank, Coco, Big Sight. Yeah. Y'all know how this shit go, you know. All eyes on me. Motherfucker, <laughs> Roll up in the club. Yeah, right. All eyes on me. Welcome to Don't with Dudes, episode 23. It's October 9th, baby. We got a great lineup for you dudes this week. For our first topic, we got the alleged murderer of Tupac finally behind bars after 27 years. So you mean to tell me he's not alive? For our second topic, we get a historic bill hitting the Congress's floor supporting green, having some green in the bank. And for our final topic this week, newly discovered clay tablets show proof of the Pythagorean theorem over a thousand years before Pythagoras himself was around. I'm a man who discovered the wheel and built the Eiffel Tower out of metal and brawn. That's what kind of man I am. You're just a woman with a small brain, with a brain a third the size of us. It's science. And stick around for the second half of our show as Cameron and I sat down with Zach Hester, CEO of Caldwell Automotive Partners, and we chopped it up about the outrageously high prices in the automotive industry, as well as what you should do if you're in the market for a new vehicle. But before we throw this batch in the oven, Anthony, hit it with that great intro track, my dude. Let's get it. Welcome to Donuts with Dudes, where we dive into the things that matter most to men, like sports, business, and mental conditioning. But we don't stop there. We also incorporate health topics, because being a well-rounded dude means taking care of yourself. We're your hosts, Anthony and Cameron, and we're excited to bring you this show, where we discuss hot topics and interview experts in their field, real dudes just like you. So sit back, grab a donut and maybe some coffee, and join us in the bakery. Dudes, for our first topic this week, and by the way, this week, in the first topic, you're not going to be hearing me huffing and puffing like you did last week. want to apologize for that. So sorry about that. I was being a fat boy and just couldn't catch my... You got it under control? Got it under control this hey, week, man. Hey, if you hey, That uh, inhaler is right there. <laughs> if you need it. Uh, yeah, it's right there, bro. I said, sounded like uh, what's the what's the girl on uh, Friday the second Friday, Baby D? You don't know oh, Baby man. D like I know Baby D. I got these new Twinkies coming out. <laughs> they gonna be hot on the market, man. Oh, man. Double stuffed. But anyways, moving right along. And our first topic this week, guys. Last Friday, well, it wouldn't be last Friday, but two Fridays ago. Dwayne Keith D. Davis was arrested and charged for the murder of Tupac Shakur's 1996 death. And this comes after 26 years of trying to identify who who killed Tupac, right? I mean, quite honestly, we even had a show about 
him being still alive, right? And and having, <laughs> and, but this could potentially be the debunking of that we finally found the murderer, man. Yeah, you think it, he, well, does that end it? Does this mean, you know, shut case? No. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, there was a lot of conspiracies behind that Tupac faked his own death. And, you know, primarily one of the reasons was, you know, one of his aliases that he went by was Machiavelli, which, you know, if you know Machiavelli, Machiavelli was the name of an Italian strategist who pretended to fake his death. And I, I think that I had heard, too, at some point that Tupac was, there was a chance that Tupac was going to go back to prison. So this is why he was going to fake his own death, so that way he wouldn't go back to prison. But then this also surrounds things with, like, him and the East Coast, West Coast beef with um, Biggie. Biggie. So then they thought that was a whole thing going on. But I guess come to find out, not it really wasn't. It was just some gang stuff in Las Vegas. Yeah, so if you guys don't know, we're just kind of give you a brief overview of how that all went down if you don't remember how Tupac died, but it was really just a, a a night that just really went wrong, right? I, I think Tupac and his gang, and uh, along with Suge Knight, they were all out at the Mike Tyson fight. They were having a good time. I think some of them were kind of showing their ass out there, and I think it was some people that were had some, had some beef, and it ended up in a fight after the Mike Tyson fight. After the fight. Tupac and Suge Knight hopping a BMW together. They end up at a stoplight and Tupac gets out of the car. Is it hanging out in the window? He's trying to call out some girls that were right next to him. The girls take off and then this Cadillac pulls up and someone in the back seat of Cadillac pulls out a gun, shoots at the car, hits Tupac four times and Suge Knight apparently takes off. So that's what we know about the death as far as the testimony goes. Like like Anthony said, there is a suspicion or there was a suspicion at that point in time that the East Coast rappers were behind Tupac's death and all of that. But come to find out, we've had this guy, Dwayne D. Keefe, who has apparently been all over social media or just all over the media talking about his involvement I don't know has he given an actual plea that like he actually shot and killed Tupac I know that he said that he's been involved and was actually in the vehicle yeah. we know that he was the gunman well they said he was the shot caller and so I'm looking at the cnn.com article here and it was talking about that he was participated in a 2018 like documentary on the Shakur Tupac um, Shakur homicide and that Davis's own admissions to his involvement in the homicide investigation that he provided to numerous different media outlets helped reignite this whole investigation just because he was bragging about being a part of it. So really that's why they're saying he talked himself into jail because he was trying to, I don't know why you would do that, dude. I mean, you're going to, yeah. I mean, who does that, man? Don't you have a, yeah. yeah, listen, who does this? I mean, it just, anyways, listen to his interview. Now to the murder investigation of rapper Tupac Shakur, nearly 30 years after the music icon's death. This did 60-year-old Davis last week. 
Davis has admitted to being in the car at the time of the drive-by shooting, penning a 2019 memoir and conducting several interviews, including with Vlad Lubovny for Vlad TV. Let's listen into this interview with uh, Vlad Dublovny. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he's got his own uh, show. Have you ever heard of Vlad TV? Um, he's got Vlad TV. Where is Vlad TV? It's on YouTube. He's a YouTuber, but he's got a lot of videos of interviews up on his YouTube, man. That uh, He interviews everybody, so okay, he's, he's credible. Cool. So listen into what he had to say whenever he was interviewed on Vlad TV. They want to come put me in jail for life. It's just something I've got to do. You know, like I'm scared of jail. Or that. And now let's listen in to uh, what Vlad, the uh, the host of the TV show Vlad TV, had to say about his interview back in 2019 when he sat down with D. Keefe. Do you think after all this time that it weighed on him? I, I don't think it really weighed on him. I think it's just been so long. And, you know, you can normalize it. You can normalize murders. So there we go. Um, kind of, kind of funny there. Hey man, if it's something he's got to do, it's something he's got to do, man. Man's got to do what a man's got to do. It's time to do the time, bro. Got to wait for it long enough, and he's just kind of like, "All right, man, I need to go." Yeah, put me up. Yeah, I guess uh, those demons can only haunt you for so long before things got to come out. So, well, dudes, what do you guys think about this? We finally know the killer of Tupac, Shakur. And is he actually really dead? I mean, is this part of an actual timeline that uh, he actually is dead? And I don't know. What do you guys think about this? As always, we have a link in our show notes that will take you to our website where you can comment on this episode and on this topic. Or you can also email us, info at donutswithdudes.com. And dudes, for our second topic this week. Looks like last week, a landmark marijuana bill is headed to the Senate floor. This comes after an historic passing by the House of Representatives passing the bill the Secure and Fair Enforcement Regulation Banking Act, also known as Safer Banking Act. This piece of legislation aims to resolve a long-standing financial deadlock that forced cannabis-related companies to operate with only cash. If you guys don't know, we actually interviewed a cannabis entrepreneur from Colorado. His name is Josh Foley from Indigo, Colorado. It's on episode eight. We talked to him about the business behind operating a cannabis company, and he talked about some of the issues like only operating and using cash and how unsafe that is and carrying sometimes, carrying tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars with him to go make deposits. Because unfortunately, these institutions do not allow them to have any type of digital transactions done with their financial institutions. Right. So it's we're in 2023 and, and for some reason this still seems like it's like an illegal drug deal or something where you got to have cash. It's super unsafe. It doesn't matter if you got a storefront or a back trunk. You know what I mean? Like it's really crazy to me. So one of the senators that is considering this bill 
is Senator Jeff Merkley, and he made mention of how big of an inconvenience this was, and that it's just really an absurdity that even banks, like if you take a fertilizer company, if a fertilizer company provides fertilizer for 200 companies, and if one of those companies happens to be a cannabis grower, the bank has to immediately stop a relationship right then and there. And man, that's just, it's a little bit crazy to me, man, that there are not even in a direct effect. There's an indirect effect that's happening with a lot of companies right now, right? I think this is a big deal here, in my opinion. You know, you look at Oregon, it's a billion dollar business every single year. And, but that comes on the backs of a lot of taxes that are being put on these these industries right now, man, right? In Oregon, there's so much business there that you lose business still. It's like there's too much competition to where it actually costs you money to cultivate a crop or something. Sure, especially whenever you're being taxed at 40 to 50% of revenue. That's pretty harsh. But this this bill is uh, kind of a segue into, you know, we've we've got now got more states in the United States that have some form of legalization part of their legislation, right? So more states are saying that we either are going to allow recreational use or medical use of marijuana. I mean, for goodness sakes, our capital, Washington, D.C., allows for the recreational use of marijuana, you know? And so this is just another... I guess, stepping stone into the legalization of marijuana in in our country. What I do know is that 40 states allow its use in some form, but it still remains illegal at the federal level. So at some point, you got to think, is this still a money thing or what? Because I feel like if all these states are somehow capitalizing on the revenue from it, ultimately it's going to get passed and decriminalized in every state. It's an act of Congress, right? And then we, we know that what that saying typically means. It's going to be a slow, bleeding process. States have the right to, to make these types of decisions. And so it's really just going to be up to each state and how they move along. But what, what the biggest moving point is to make this a federally legal thing, right? I mean, that's the biggest roadblock because a bank can't support a federally illegal company. So that's that's the roadblock here is being able to allow institutions from a state standpoint support a cannabis company or a cannabis supporting company in that supply chain. So, you know. What makes me laugh about this is just how far we've come in the last 25 years or even 20 years. I remember one of my buddies, um, when his girlfriend was studying abroad and like backpacking through Germany in college. So he was like, yeah, I'm going to go meet her and we're going to go through the, you know, go backpacking for three weeks and do all this stuff. I'll be damned, bro. He went, they met in uh, Amsterdam and he stayed there for three weeks, dude. He never left. And because, and that was because of how free things were in Amsterdam at the time where that was the only place in the, in the world that you could go and smoke weed. Yeah. I remember it, that. It, it meant that much to my dude that he, <laughs> he just canceled the rest of the trip and stayed three weeks in Amsterdam. <laughs> R.I.P. to my boy Henry, but honestly, like, I don't know. That was his thing, dude. <laughs> I'll never forget that. He went and met his girl there. And they hung just out had to bed for, yeah. for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, he hung out for two days. Then when it was time for the, her to go, you know, they were supposed to leave together. He stayed there, bro. Hey, man. But that that's funny you mentioned that because you're right. We There is a point in time in our lifetimes where 
go back 20, 25 years, there is a very small area within this whole entire world where you could go and smoke marijuana legally or consume cannabis legally, along with a lot of other, uh, what do you want to call them, pleasantries, whatever. And now, I mean, look at the whole entire world and their acceptance of it, especially here in America. And the majority of the land mass here in America, depending on where you go, you can consume marijuana. So, yeah, it's interesting to see within a generation's time the the acceptance and the the change within this industry. Good point. Yeah. But we do know is, all in all, this could potentially be really good for banks, nonetheless, right? And I think banks are probably on board with this because this is potentially a multi, multi-billion dollar a year industry that could uh, bring a lot of money to the financial institution too as well. So I think that if you see big money behind it, you're probably going to see it. You're, you're going to see a lot of support within that area. So dudes, what do you guys think about this topic? Obviously there's a legalization question that's involved with this, but and if you want to discuss that, we're happy to have you in the conversation on that. But what do you think about this topic, this safer banking act going to the Senate floor and potentially breaking way for cannabis companies to do business with uh, big banks. Hit us in our show notes or email us info at donutswithdudes.com. And dudes for our final topic this week. This didn't happen last week, but we found this interesting article about the Pythagorean theorem. And I hope you guys know what that is, but if you don't know what that is, it's basically the theory about how to calculate the sides of triangle, right? You may have heard A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And it's attributed to a Greek mathematician in the first century BC whose name was Pythagoras. Pythagoras actually had a school in Italy at this point in time where he and his pupils documented this theory itself. And there's a lot of writing that goes back to this actual formula being discovered. And so since there is a lot of writings that we can trace all the way back to the time of Pythagoras, this theory historically has always been attributed to this man. And so Therefore, hence the name Pythagorean Theorem. However, here recently, there have been multiple clay tablets that were discovered. They are dated to over a millennia prior to Pythagoras and, and his school. And they actually show, uh, written in Sanskrit, that they actually had the knowledge of the Pythagorean Theorem long before Pythagoras did. This leads to a good conversation about universal mathematics. Because math is the same all over the world. Sure. So it's like a universal language. You know, a phrase or formula that has the same meaning regardless of another language that accompanies it. Math helps people learn and communicate even if other communication barriers exist. So, you know, some things of, of universal mathematics, there's a book dealing with the law of attraction, numerology, metaphysics. And the connection on how we use numbers in relationship to nature. For instance, the number four, we have four seasons, four directions, and four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. If you've ever seen the structure of the, the flower of life, the cell, it's, um, 
You could probably look it up, but it's four cell walls. Yes. Right. So there's just a lot of, you know, there's not really coincidences, I guess, because, you know, we don't believe that here, but there's a lot of instances where you're looking at a snowflake and it's symmetrical. You know, there's math in everything that we have in life. Yeah. Well, what interests me even more, man, is the number three, though, right? I mean, everything's a triangle and everything can be broken down in a triangle. Even four walls or a square is broken down into a triangle. You can only break down a triangle and into another triangle, right? Right. And so 180 degrees is within a triangle. Therefore, each shape going up from there from a square to an octagon by each side that each shape has goes up by 180 degrees, right? You get 360 degrees within a square in a pentagon you got 540 degrees and so on and so forth and everything is dependent on and based down to triangles and it's crazy that you can go back 4,000 years and they understood this logic right I mean that's why you have the pyramids that date back to supposedly four to five thousand years ago right and then that's when you start seeing documentation of the understanding of the triangle, how to understand the links and how to cut certain triangles and certain squares and certain blocks, right? Which goes into the number four, right? And so numerology is really interesting stuff, man. And it, you're right. These different numbers have different meanings according to the universe. Even back when Tesla was around, man, he believed in a you've heard of the 369 theory but lay it on me so tesla's theory of 369 is based on the concept of reducing any number to a single digit by adding together its individual digits so for example 369 reduces to 9 times 3 plus 6 plus 9 equals 18 which therefore 1 plus 8 equals nine. So there's some really crazy theories behind all of that, but Tesla believed that the three, six, and nine were the most important digits in the system and that all other numbers could be understood in relations to these three. One of the most fascinating aspects of Tesla's theory of three, six, nine is its relationship to energy and frequency. So according to Tesla's three, six, and nine are the only numbers that can exist as an energy without losing their identity. This concept is supported by modern physics, which recognizes the importance of these numbers in the study of atomic and subatomic particles. So we all know what's, what Tesla was up to, man, when he was finding free energy and, you know, really studying all of this. And for him to come down to this theory, they say it's the keys to the universe. You're right. See, little John knew, bro. Little John knows. Leave me little John knows, bro. 369. It's all there, man. So there's also a thing with uh, manifesting when it's the 369 theory. They say if you can, you got to write it down. But if you if you think of something and you do it three times, you write it down three times in the morning, six times in the afternoon, nine times in the evening, and you do that for 30 days, You'll see significant change in your life based on that. That's a lot of damn times. That's right. It's so many. Hey, I did it, dude. Unfortunately, it manifested in some 
unconventional changes in my life, to be honest with you. So it was, it's very dangerous. I be would careful think. what you ask. Yes. But it's interesting in American culture, how we look at round numbers. Like we look at round numbers in like groups of like fives or tens. Anything that's in like a 10, 20, 30, 40, you know, 100, 200, those kinds of things. We look at things differently as far as bases go or roundness goes in American culture. You look at numbers of five, tens, you know, you go from 10, 20, 30. We, we tend to look at things in that, those types of contexts, 100, 200, 300. But in ancient cultures, they actually looked at things in bases of threes, twelves, and 60. Those were the round numbers back then because the way that they actually counted was counting the bones in your hand. You'd use your thumb on your left hand to count the bones on all four of your fingers, which is three bones in each one of those fingers, which gives you 12. And then you could count how many sets of 12 you have on your right hand, which you, if you count up to five times, it gets you to 60. So interesting the way that we look at numbers. Dudes, what do you guys think about numerology and the findings of these tablets here and the history that we're told as kids and what's in our history books versus the things that we're finding that are countercultural. We'd love to get you guys in on the conversation on this. Anthony and I don't necessarily believe everything that we present, but we do like a good story. We do like a good article that can present a logical and sometimes a compelling argument to what our history books have told us. We'd love to hear your side of the story. You can always find our link in our show notes, or you can email us to join the conversation. What is it, Anthony? Info at DonutsWithDudes.com. Boom. We'll return to the show in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. At some point in our adult lives, we may have to turn our attention to the needs and safety of our parents and grandparents as they age. They've done so much for us, and it's our turn to make sure they have the best quality of life. I founded HomeSpark because seniors deserve to have the very best care available so they can age with dignity and remain independent longer. Our caregivers provide wellness checks, companionship, transportation, meal preparation, and more of what you think is important. To learn more about our personalized care plan, visit us at homesparkcare.com. HomeSpark, we care for people. Well, dudes, in the bakery again this week, we have Zach Hester, owner and CEO, Caldwell Automotive Group, He's here to talk about what's going on with the strikes in the automotive industry and the auto workers and how that's impacting dealerships and car prices to consumers. Let's jump right into the interview. Hey, Zach, we want to thank you so much for coming back into the bakery this week. Obviously, we want to catch up to with you about the industry and obviously we have the auto worker labor union uh, strike going on right now. Let's talk a little bit about that and talk a little bit about what's happened since last time we talked to you. No, it, it, you know, things have been going good for us. It's, it's, uh, I say that, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's relative, uh, inventory has been, I, you know, I would say that it hasn't necessarily fixed the the problems that we talked about last time. I would say that it was kind of trending in the right direction in terms of, uh, most of the OEMs, original equipment manufacturers are kind of figuring their, their flow out in terms of parts that it switched from, you know, just semiconductors more to specific parts. I, I would say, you know, fixed ops in our service departments is really where most of the struggle has been over the last four months. And and what I mean by that is 
is just specific parts. Um, not 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 everything, but just you know, obviously the uh, electric parts, specifically seat motors. A lot of that kind of stuff has been um, much more difficult to get, and and just the turnaround time has been longer. Now, what I will say is it's, it's much better than what I would consider to be like COVID times, to where you know pretty much any part that you're looking for. It was typically call it a you know a four day five day part was a four to five week part. Mm. So you know we we've gotten a little bit better with that, but there's still some nuances that that have caused you know some major delays in certain certain models, certain makes. It just kind of depends. Every 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 little piece of it's a little bit different, but uh, it, it was definitely trending in the right direction before the you know the strikes took place. Hey, Zach, can you provide an overview of your dealership's current inventory in light of recent events, such as the UAW strike affected your inventory levels and the availability of specific vehicles? So, yeah, it's a great question, Anthony. I, I think that probably the easiest way to answer that is we haven't seen it yet. So, so I think COVID, just to kind of to put it in perspective, when COVID really hit and then, you know, that was on the tail end of the last strike, right? That was, that was the end of 2019, uh, was kind of when that strike took place and, and they, they kind of finished everything up. I want to say it was like mid to late November, maybe early December. And then, and then, you know, things kind of got ramped back up, but then it, it, you know, you were hit on the other side of the the shutdown to where it just shut the factories back down again. So you, you might as well have just said that the strike kind of, you know, extended through that, but it, it, it was a very short strike last time which I don't expect this time and I'll, I'll get into that. But, um, you know, I, I think that, um, it, it'll be 90 to 120 days behind for dealers for before we actually feel a specific, um, you know, cause and effect from that. I, again, to kind of take it back to the parts, those parts manufacturers are more important than your assembly line manufacturers. And the reason I say that is, is because that's what those factories are harder to go on and offline, whereas a lot of the the true assembly line manufacturing plants are pretty kind of plug and play. You want you know you can you can kind of start where you left off, whereas parts manufacturers takes a lot longer to uh, to get back up to full speed or to full capacity, especially those semiconductors, which is where you had that that massive delay mm. at the you know at the kind of the mid of of uh, of COVID. Now as to the you know, the specifics of the, of, of the, the strike itself and kind of what's behind it. I, you know, I'll be honest, it's, it's one of those things to where obviously from the dealership level, it's certainly something that we're very concerned about. And we can see a lot of, of the effects that are going to start affecting our day-to-day business relatively quickly. Um, I would say, you know, and, and, and in, the, in the coming weeks, but we're also getting a lot of questions and, and, and obviously a lot of people that are not quite sure what's happening, but you know, I, I think that the OEMs, um, what, what you know, at least from my perspective, is they need to to, to somewhat hold strong here. And and the reason I say that is because this is a pretty significant increase from uh, the, the most recent contract that was you know honestly not too long ago settled upon. And I'm sure that you guys have have read over these, but from from the most recent numbers that we've seen at the store level, which was a 46 percent increase in in uh, wages, which you know wow. Keep in mind, UAWs is one of the, you know is is not one of they are the highest paid manufacturing you know wing of of any of the 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 big boy OEMs, but uh, pretty much across across the market in terms of uh, what it, what it gets what you get paid to be at a manufacturing plant. Now, in, in addition to that, they want a 
32 hour work week, but to be paid 40 hours. Um, and again, that sounds good in theory, right? But the, the money's got to come from somewhere. And then that's the, the biggest thing that I'll stress is, is we kind of, we kind of touched on this topic the last time we spoke, but, but, you know, Anthony, you're the most familiar. You've got a, a very nice Tahoe, but you, those, those Tahoes, you know, not even 10 years ago were, were $40,000 cheaper for a, a, you know, top end, high end, uh, full blown, you know, everything you can put on one. Now, now you're looking at $85,000 Tahoes and up to, you know, $130 plus thousand dollar Escalades. And, and what I'll tell you is, is mo- the bulk of what's built in those prices is not a whole lot of profit margin as, as you would think. It's labor. And, and the more this labor goes increase, where do you think that's going to go to? It's not going to be the OEMs and it's not going to be the dealerships. It's going directly into the consumer. And I, that's where I have the biggest concern, the biggest kind of, you know, as much as it's going to hurt our business and affect our business, the longer the strike lasts, just getting into their demands, I think is just going to hurt the consumer more, much more long-term than it will short-term. And, and, and especially, you know, just to tie it all together with interest rates where they are, you know, at, 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 at 10 year highs in terms of the automotive business and especially the indirect lending specific to the, the retail automotive field. I mean, you're talking at rates that are, you know, four to 6% higher than they were, you know, 60, I'm, I'm sorry, six months ago to, to three years ago and even longer for that matter, you know, co- compound that with, a you know, a short supply, which is already artificially in- increasing prices on the, on the hail, you know, the tail end of, of obviously increased prices on manufacturers from, you know, inflation as well as now an, a massive increase in labor pricing. It, it's kind of a perfect storm and it's, it's not something that, that uh, I think we should take lightly. It sounds like it, man. You know, I mean, just hearing those numbers, 46%, I mean, you add that on top of anything, especially for a high ticket purchase. I mean, that's, that's a significant difference. And obviously you mentioned big things there. Yeah. The interest rates, I mean, you're feeling that everywhere especially when you, when it comes to buying high ticket items like cars and, and, and houses right now. And so, yeah, I, I feel like it, it could be a recipe for an impending disaster kind of going forward, man. But kind of going back into these strikes, you know, we talked about labor issues and labor expenses cutting into even your costs, right? I mean, your cost at the dealership, your cost for vehicles that you're getting just to bring them onto your lot to be sold. You touched a little bit on supply chain issues. What are you seeing these days? I know throughout the pandemic and the last time we talked to you, these things hadn't really, they worked themselves out a little bit, but what are we seeing today, man? Are you, we still having trouble finding the right vehicles and, and, and sourcing the right parts and such? It's gotten, I would say more specified in terms of what's, what the holdback is now, like now, for instance, just to kind of, to, to tag on to what we were talking as well, the high, high end stuff, um, to, to give you an example, like a like a Chevrolet Tahoe, an LT package that's you know I would say like a, a solid middle of the road package, is is was you know pr- you know prior to the strike getting back on track in terms of the normal turnaround time, normal quantity to be able to get from our manufacturer. You know, and and you know the previous to COVID, it was one of those things where you know th- there was a cycle. Let's just call it from from March to March during an, any given year, to where we could order essentially as many Tahoes as we wanted to sell to the general public right and and you know we may order 10 to start with and then as we kind of see how those are going obviously you, you figure out that maroon may do better than than black black maybe doing better than white and you know the, the different color of interiors whether it's brown you know versus silver and just kind of all those things that kind of play into your your ordering cycle whereas now the choices are just not as plentiful as they used to be so you may 
you may only be able to order four colors with you know two options of inside if you want to get it with a quick turnaround. So call it 60 to 120 days. Um, that used to not be the case. Now, even more specified is like like um, the super high end, like the fully loaded Tahoe. Think like a high country versus like a a Denali GMC or you know Platinum Escalade. Those are are so few and far between. And, and what they're doing is they're limiting not only how many they're producing, but how many dealers can get their hands on them. Like you know, for for instance, to give you an example, I want to say sometime in the last six weeks or so, um, they they call it a. Uh, uh, but constraint list what what vehicles are on constraint and in the high country they're only going to make 12 that week for the entire united states of america whereas historically there wasn't a limit so that tells you how few of those parts that they have and it takes you know something in just the semiconductor realm and then i guess the f-150 is probably the best example like a like a platinum f-150 versus like a basic model xl that like would be a fleet truck there's something like 14 to 1800 more semiconductors that go into that platinum versus that that uh that base model right so you could almost do two for one of those those base models versus the new ones now now think about what that is in an escalade where you have like six different screens and all the you know all the different electronic parts that you don't normally have um, it just increases and and so you know the, the, the point of all that is it's, it's it was getting better and it was getting more consistent but it was staying pretty consistently bad in the super high-end market which is where You've kind of seen a pretty, a pretty steady price range, um, which again I don't think it's right. I think it's artificially high because it's still based upon, again, the the supply more so than demand. But I don't think demand has really changed that much. Um, I think supply has changed, which is just artifact, you know, artificially um, inflating demand and making prices kind of stay much higher. Which I think you know we're we're you know without the strike, we were pretty close to turning that corner in terms of being able to uh, to bring things back into a normal a normal cycle. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. But it but it also brings up another one <laughs> in your in, uh, in, no in your which it often does with me. You know, talking about demand and you mentioned prices kind of being a little bit inflated right now. In the short term, I don't know if it's long term, do you see that maybe this leads to lower demand, therefore lower prices in the near future for vehicles or is this something that manufacturers were are just going to hang on to these these prices no matter what? Even if even if demand is low, they're just going to keep this uh, this artificial resistance, if you will, uh, of pricing. It's a great question. I think it has multiple answers, and it's kind of a, a multiple uh, tiered tiered question. And then the reason I say that is because I think there's two there's two pieces to that puzzle. I I, I don't think that you know for the manufacturer side, what's going to address their pricing is not going to be. Demand. I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna adjust their, their production. I would say, but you know, here's the reality about the big three and even Toyota for that matter. They're all, you know, massively huge companies that are publicly traded and they have shareholders to answer to, and what they're graded upon is market share. So, you know, I've heard Ford come out and I've heard uh, Toyota come out and say they're going to try to stay on more of a made-to-order type level, and I think that that sounds good in theory. However, I think that it's not realistic because. As soon as things get back to somewhat of a, a little bit of normalcy, they're still going to have to answer those shareholders as to why GM or why Dodge, who decided not to do that that process, is, has increased their market share over Ford. And then, then you're going to have a, a you know another battle of who can produce the most cars. And they're they're when they're you know uh, actually reporting earnings, they're basically telling you how many vehicles they sold to a car dealership, not how many vehicles they sold to the user. 
So there's a little bit of a lag there. Now, I think to take that a step further, I think that dealers are certainly going to do their best to, to keep the margins higher. And, and, you know, there's, it's, it's a, that's a tough, cause we already look, you know, it's already a tough business anyway. We kind of discussed last time. It's already, you know, the image of, of a car dealership, the image of a car salesman in particular is already you know, a little bit of rough. This, this, you know, the, the ongoing economic circumstances and, and supply chain issues haven't helped that. And I think we've kind of, as, as a, as a dealer body have handled it pretty poorly, quite frankly. But when you have, when you go from having 300 vehicles to sell a month, that's 30, you know, you, but your overhead hasn't changed, then, you, you know, your certainly your margins are going to change. And I think that's pretty, uh, pretty just, just like inflation on, on other products, you know? Um, but, you know, from the manufacturing side and from the wage side, the manufacturers aren't going to, are going to save any of that, that money. Like the cars are never going to go down. I, I, the, the funniest thing that I've seen, it's the only time in, in my history in 20 plus years in the business that I've ever seen a new model be priced less. And it was, I, I, it's still crazy to say it out loud, but the Chevrolet Corvette, this most recent uh, body style change that actually went from, you know, the, the, the 6.2 liter that had forever, that was kind of like the stalwart of the, of, of the GM organization. It's in the Escalades. It's in the, you know, the high end trucks and the Denali's it's the, it's the best motor they've ever made. Well, they went to a mid engine and, and designed what I think looks like a supercar of, you know, of any brand for that matter. I mean, you, you get kind of closely models of Ferrari or any of those other high-end cars. It quite frankly performs at the same level, but it actually got cheaper. So from the production, you know, your highest MSRP that you could spend on one versus the lowest is significantly lower than the previous model. And that's the first time in, in the business that I've ever seen a car get cheaper from one production cycle, from one body style change to the next. So I, I don't think that it's going to get any better. I think that, um, that's why you have a lot of uh, of new, you know, startups that are popping up in the finance world that are, you know, think ride shares and, and different alternative ways to to transport yourself are going to continue to to show their faces. Just you know, a, a similar to the real estate world. I mean, it, quite frankly, it, it's becoming unaffordable. Uh, and you know, that's that's from from my perspective as a as a dealer. And it's 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 sad to say that, but I think it's pretty accurate. And it's the it, the prices are. are continue to increase at, 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 you know, historical levels. And I don't, I don't see that going down anytime soon based on the, you know, the forecast of what we're seeing with production and interest rates and, you know, labor costs, et cetera. Mm. Yikes. So when you're talking about these Corvettes and, you know, the muscle power that we used to look for, what do you see is going on with like the EV space now? And is that uh, something that's still trending in a an upward direction or are people still gravitating towards gas and diesel? You know, that's the, an even better question. So I'll, I'll tell you, we, we see a lot of different sides of that, Anthony. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple perspectives from the consumer side, especially in, in the, at the rural stores. I would say that, that we don't see a whole lot of demand for those cars specifically. You know, Chevrolet's got a pretty good mix of, of cars that they're, they're offering or soon to offer. Uh, same with Ford and same with Dodge. There's a lot of new stuff coming out, a lot, of, a lot of new stuff in the pipeline in terms of production, but they're also way, way behind in terms of um, what they're advertising versus what's actually available to the general public. Um, it, it's hard to get the Ford Lightning that just came out. It's almost impossible to get the uh, the Silverado EV. We've heard you know rumors of Trailblazer EV is coming out. We've had we've had a lot of inquiries on those. Now, on the government side, to where you know these these. Um, uh, state and local entities are getting federal grants to buy um, EVs, and so we're seeing a huge, huge uptick in in demand for those on on even the federal side as well. 
um, that you know obviously there's a federal mandate that's that's looming upon us to to switch the entire fleet over, and, and then um, that's I think that kind of answers the questions on terms of demand. Now let's talk about reality because um, I think that's probably the most important thing. I think there's a lot of good that can come out of this, but I also think we're a, a little behind the curve here. I don't think that most of our major cities have the infrastructure set up to be able to charge these vehicles. I don't think most of the homes or, or the uh, electrical systems in in, uh, in America are set up to to be able to have a, a mass switchover in cars. I think we're still sitting less than four percent of the total cars on the road that are they're going to be EV. Um, which you know, here's my major concerns. I think that that if you look at Toyota, which is the dealership that I don't have, um, but but I, I look up to a lot because they they've obviously had a high success rate in terms of their organization through good times and bads. And I tell you what, they're they're cautiously slow on the EV trend, and they're spending a lot of money on on development of the internal combustion engine. Um, they're they're. You know, they were the first ones to come out with a hybrid. They're the first ones to come out with the, you know, the 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 all EV Prius. That's but true. they're not doing. They're not trying to switch their main, you know, their their major vehicles over. I don't have a lot of ranchers and farmers and, and quite frankly, college kids that drive trucks that parents pay for asking me for an EV. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And and those customers that are that in that bracket are looking for Tesla. They're not looking for a Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a different car. It's more the high end luxury market versus. Versus that tour, it's kind of one of those things where I think that they're and, and the price of those is going to increase so much that it's I I would I would you know say that it's pretty close to doing solar on your house. Where again, sounds like a great theory, but if it takes you twenty two years to get your you know to where your break even to kind of take into place, are you still going to be in that house? And on the EV side, what what concerns me, where I have a little you know um, caution that, that I share with a lot of people, is you know. There's a lot of new technology that's just come out and a lot of untested technology. Think about that. Anytime, anytime you buy a new car, that's the first cycle of a new body style or a new engine or a new anything, you tend to have a lot of kinks to work out, right? And so I think that there's some untested uh, technology in terms of how long these batteries are going to last. And the reason that I'm stressing that, guys, is what concerns me is let's just let's just use a Silverado as an example. If you buy a Let's call it a seventy thousand dollar EV, all, all EV Silverado. That, that is, you know, if it, if it was an internal combustion, you're looking at probably like a fifty five thousand dollar range, right? So now let's fast forward four years later and a hundred thousand miles later. Let's let's call it five years later, miles. That's a little over the American average in terms of years and miles that, that the typical person drives. In Texas, is always a little bit greater because of the rule, you know, obviously towns that we have and how far it is to just go from one side of College Station to the other side of Bryant. So again, with a hundred thousand miles, your battery goes out and it's out of warranty. And now for that truck to be able to work, to be worth anything, it's got to have a battery in it. And you find out that your battery cost to replacement is 26 to $28,000. Oh. <laughs> What's that truck work now? You see what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so now, now do the math on what your, your internal combustion truck that you spent $15,000 less is less on. And it still runs. Yeah, you may have replaced the AC, you may have replaced this or that, which you're still going to have to do on the EVs, but you don't have to worry about that battery problem. It's they cost more than the engines do to replace and and you know or repair and replace. Quite frankly, mm. and, and that's what a lot of people aren't thinking about is what. And what I said, it's going to be the five year thing. Once we have the first big cycle of purchases, I think what we're going to see is a five year lag to where I think that market's going to you know change pretty quickly. I don't. I honestly. I think we're seeing a lot of noise and a lot of push towards this, but I haven't seen a lot of manufacturers just, you know, producing them 
you know, to where they're actually sitting on lots for sale. Um, like, like the old car business to where you, you could drive by and pick out any color, any, any, any shape, any you know model you wanted. And I, and I think that we're quite a ways away from manufacturers having that type of availability. So it's going to be a slow overturn. And I don't, I do, I think that by the time it fully takes on, we're going to be looking at, at alternative sources for, for engines and, and what the next step is. I, you know, I think that, uh, if you've got a lot of interesting options, you got, you know, you obviously got hydrogen, which is Toyota's, you know, betting a lot of money on. You've got obviously the, the hybrids, you've got full, full EVs, you've got diesel and you've got the, just the old school internal combustion. And, and what, you know, what, which one ultimately wins out? I, I think we're, I think, I don't think we have enough information yet, but I, I think, I think, you know, we, we need to be careful with, with everybody going all EV. Yeah. I, I, I did not know 25 racks to replace your battery. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's, and that's, that's, you know, that, that's your, your run of the mill. I mean, I think I've, I've heard numbers that are higher than that, what type of car it is and, and what type of vehicle it is. And that's, uh, I mean, but, but think about that. Like, like, think about if you're having to come out of pocket that and you're looking at whether, what's your truck going to be worth with a hundred thousand miles and a new battery. I think you're going to, it's going to be a whole new classification of vehicles that have to be valued in a different way because you're not going to value that's the same as a hundred thousand mile you know, internal combustion that's just had the oil changed and, and been, you know, very well maintained and kind of kept up with. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that's where my mind was going is I'm wondering if you guys have those specific models already written up where, hey, this is how you're going to value a car whenever it comes in for a trade-in. Is that something you guys are continuously re-looking at and the way that you... It's, no, it's certainly, it's, you can't get, you know, you, you got to be prepared for, for any type of trade-in. It's one of those things where you know, hell, we've taken courses that on trade before, but um, you, you get my point. You really, you, you've got to be able to put a value on anything, and and it's so rare to get an EV in on trade that's not a Tesla, and um, and so when you do, I'll be honest, they're taking pretty big hits when it comes to that. Uh, they're not worth anything that's not a Tesla is taking a pretty significant value hit, even compared to the same model in, a, in an internal combustion and. Like if, with an example, I'd say that, you know, if you were looking side by side with a, uh, like a Malibu, um, we're so scared that if we sell this cut, you know, cause here's the thing that we've got to worry about as a dealer too. If I sell this, you know, if Anthony comes in and wants to buy a car for his kid and he's got, let's call it, you know, 20 grand to spend. And I've got this used hybrid that I've run through the shop. I've done all the maintenance I could do to it, but it, it's, it's out of warranty or at least the battery's out of warranty. And you know, two weeks or two months goes down the road. And even though he knows he's buying a warranty, you know, with, with it as is that, that motor goes out, that battery goes out. Cause that is the motor. Uh, and, and he comes back and now we've got a, you know, an $18,000 bill for a car that, that he just paid 20,000 for, you know, he's not going to be happy. And I'm not going to be happy because, because I'm going to have to eat that as a dealer to because that's just what to, to do good business. You've got to take care of your customers. And, and then obviously that's not a, <laughs> you know, we paid for that car, you know, and whether we had, we obviously had a margin, but our margins are in the single digit percentages, not, not in the, in the double digits plus, you know, so we're, you, you're definitely losing money to replace that car, but it just, it creates a bad situation for both consumer and dealer. And, and the ones who don't have to worry about it is the manufacturer. Yeah. That's, uh, I, mean, I, guess I think I'll bring it all gloom and doom here. Guys. <laughs> I was like, well, I wasn't happy. You know? I was just like, man, I got to go get my oil changed, dude. <laughs> to be I better start taking care of my car, man. 
Man, and it, you know, it's it's one of those things. That's what I always tell people: is, is you got to decide on your budget. You know, what what's your cost per mile willing to be versus what the car is? Because that's what, you, what that's how you've got to figure out what you're willing to spend. Is what's your cost per mile? When the, the most that you're willing to spend is the most you, you should spend. Don't look at it as I've got an eighty thousand dollars budget for a tire. Look at it as what can I pay per mile? Because no matter what you do, you're going to have a cost per mile. If you buy if you buy a cheaper car that's, that's not under warranty. And you've got a lot of maintenance and replacement costs and repair costs. You, you might be paying the same per mile as the guy that, that paid you know seventy four thousand dollars for a Tahoe, and and has a full you know bumper to bumper warranty and much better gas mileage. So it's that that's the way, the best thing I can tell you. And also just completely understand that it's it's a depreciating piece of metal. It is the worst investment you'll ever make in your entire life, other than maybe a boat or an airplane, which you know same same concept. Uh-huh. <laughs> They always say the the two best days of owning a boat is the day you buy it and the day you sell it. So that's right. That's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> and, and it's just it's unfortunate with vehicles because it's it's you know it's your second largest purchase and that's, that that goes right back into the conversation of how expensive everything's getting, but they depreciate it at such a great rate compared to you know real estate or anything else that you're you're investing in. And and it's a uh, I mean because that's the thing is we we can call it you know lease purchase you know however you want to do it. it you're still investing in your cost per mile. So there's still ownership to you as as the consumer. There's that, that's what I want people to understand is whether no matter how you purchase the car, you still got to break it down on what it costs you to own that car. What your co- true cost of ownership is, because that's how you should budget. Yeah, man. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. But hey, Zach. So thanks for joining the show again uh, for the second nice. time, and we we're glad you could come on. But um, before we let you go. Let's get some advice from you. Let's say one of our listeners is out here and, you know, they're wanting to buy a, they're in the market. What's the best advice you can give them right now to kind of what to look for and what to expect and how to go about doing that? Research, research, research. You know, the good thing about the, uh, the internet and, and then the bad thing for dealers, uh, is that there's so much information readily available to any person that wants to get it. I mean, my 13 year old could probably find a car quicker than my, my mother could, you know, and on, on the internet, but find a better deal, I should say. Mm. But, you know, there, there's, that's the good thing is we're so interconnected. You know, you can shop prices on cars or in, in Idaho and compare them to College Station with, with the only cost difference you really come up with is, is whatever transport cost that truly, you know, that, that truly would be. And in some cases, you know, dealers are willing to deliver. But it, it, what I will say is, is be stern with how you, how you send something in and understand that we really don't want to negotiate. We want a reasonable offer that we can, you know, that we can take and make work for both parties and we both leave happy. So it's one of those things when, when you're, when you're sending, you know, the, the days of 10, 20, $30,000 off that you're seeing all these crazy rebates are just not the times that we're living in because of the lack of manufacturer rebates because of the lack of supply and obviously the increase in demand. So prices are at all time high and it's inventory is harder to get. It's harder to, uh, uh, negotiate when you when you have a limited vehicle you know number of vehicles you're going to be able to sell so it makes it harder to be able to to, to justify you know deep discounts but um but you know make a full offer it's one of those things where where what i will caution people on is is a, what a lot of dealers have taken to is adding and it's the only way to really put it is just dealer fees some of them are in the, sh- the shape or form of uh of like freight and prep which is a nonsense term and it's not anything that we're freighting or prepping. We do the same thing whether we charge that fee or not. Then we obviously we don't charge that fee. But uh, there's also some we'll, we'll we'll add GPS systems on there that cost, you know, let's just call it pennies, and they try to charge dollars. 
So you don't need any extra stuff in terms of like GPSs and stuff like that. I mean, think about what you've got uh, with with the phone at your fingertips. Now, I will say that warranties are something that I, again, this goes back to our conversation about the cost per mile, but if if you're going to keep the car, you need a warranty. It's, it's so expensive to fix these cars. Labor rates are higher than they've ever been. I mean, the average diesel tax makes, or is making um, over $75 an hour, which which is being charged at, and, you know, anywhere from 120 to 130 to the, to the consumer. So that's before you're buying parts. And and parts are obviously at an all-time high. So so it, it's one of those things. Make sure you're protected for what you're using the vehicle for, but don't take any of the nonsense that people try to add onto this stuff. And it's not hard to shop. I mean, if you go to a website like autotraderacars.com, there's so many of them now. But you can find a, you, you can find a manufacturer invoice for any car out there, and you can kind of see what reasonable people are paying for cars. That's that's the the technology is is you shouldn't overpay, and the easiest way to do it is to do it via the internet. Man, I, uh, I I was a little doom and gloom uh, from this conversation, but honestly, I kind of felt the the calmness come from your voice. That, hey, man, there's there's still a good way to to be a good consumer in this market, and it's not just all doom and gloom. No, it's not. There's there's a lot of positive guys, I and mean, I, I mean, I, you know, just to add one more thing, I think it's 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 you know, there's there's a lot of things that are out of your control and out of my control and out of the OEM's control. We can't forget that stuff. What, what you've got to look at is is what you're purchasing and, and what it's going to cost you now versus, you know, what it's going to cost you. Like I said, what, what it's going to cost you over the life of ownership. But, you know, you can't control a lot of things, so you just got to do what's best for you individually. And that's the biggest thing I can stress. I think that's good advice. Absolutely. Zach, man, we, we really appreciate it. And it's not our first time doing it, but I hope it's not our last, definitely, man, to get you on the show and, and chop it up. And um, we appreciate you coming on the show this time, and we'll have you back here soon. Absolutely, guys. And then the best of luck to you guys. You guys are killing it, and I love it. I can't wait to hear the next episode. And uh, I'll just keep doing y'all's thing and, and look forward to hearing you guys again. So, congratulations, brother. Hey, thank you, man. No problem. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Well, dudes, that's it for our show this week. You dudes may have noticed over the past couple of weeks, Anthony and I have, have let our hair down a little bit. We've thrown in a little bit of cuss words here and there. And we just kind of wanted a little bit more of our organic conversation to come out. And Anthony and I, well, you know what? We cuss a little bit. And so we hope you guys are enjoying the show and the new release of, of how we're releasing our stories. But a special shout out to Zach Hester for stopping by in the bakery again this week to talk about what's going on in the automotive industry and how you can improve your chances of landing a better deal at the point of sale if you're in the market for a new car. Now, dudes, if you're in the market for a new vehicle, I suggest you hit up Zach or his great team. You can look them up at CaldwellCountryChevrolet.com. That's where I go to get my vehicles, and they have great service. They're going to take care of you and treat you like family. As always, you can look up our content on our link tree at Donuts with Dudes. And dudes, you can request a shout out or comment on today's show by following the link in our show notes, or you can also email us info at donutswithdudes.com. Dudes, remember our mission is to make men better and smarter each week. So if you get a chance, share the show with some friends. And until next week, take care of yourself and we'll see you in the bakery for our next batch of our fresh hot topics.